Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. We are back after a multi-month hiatus, and we've got a podcast for you today, and it's a really important one. You guys know what an ABA fan I am. If you if you follow Super 70 Sports on Twitter or if you listen to this podcast, I've I've had Hall of Famers such as Dan Issel and George McGinnis and Peter Vesey, Hubie Brown, uh, guys who were a big part of the American Basketball Association. And today I have yet another all-star player from the ABA joining me on the podcast. Brian Taylor, a two-time ABA All-Star and a two-time ABA champion with the New York Nets. And a great guy and a guy who's got a lot of tremendous stories and I can't wait to bring him on in a few moments. But before I do that, I want to also get in a word about something that I think is even more important than the kinds of fun that we normally talk about on this show. And that is the plight of retired ABA players, at least some of them. Players who do not have a pension today, because when the American Basketball Association merged with the NBA in 1976, there were quite a few players who fell through the cracks. Guys who had put in their time in the ABA and who either never got into the NBA or who got into the NBA and maybe only played a season or two and therefore did not qualify for the NBA's pension. And so right now, major work needs to be done in order to take care of these guys who are in their 70s for the most part, and in some cases, former ABA players who don't even have enough money to go to the doctor or to even go to the dentist and have what you or I would consider basic maintenance health work done. Uh, These guys in many cases can't afford it, or if their car breaks down, there's nothing that they can do and they're left without transportation. And many of these guys are still working because they don't have a retirement to rely on. And as I think you guys know, athletes who played in the 1970s were not making crazy money like athletes are today. And so these guys had to go out after their careers were over and get jobs and work nine to five. And in some cases, they still are past the age that I think any of us would want to see someone have to go out and, and work a full week. But these guys are out there doing that. So... Uh, I want to bring on as well today, in addition to Brian Taylor, Scott Tarter, who is the co-founder and the CEO of the Dropping Dimes Foundation. And Scott is a saint. He's he's one of the nicest guys that I have met in sports. He's uh, as good of a guy as as they come. And, And he's a guy who was an ABA fan as a kid, like myself and like probably many of you that are listening. And in his adulthood, he took it upon himself to try and help these guys. And he's done a lot of tremendous work. The Dropping Dimes Foundation has helped many, many former ABA players. And right now, what we're trying to do is get awareness of this issue and hopefully uh, do whatever is necessary to get the National Basketball Association and the Players Association on board to help these players because it's something that is not only the right thing to do, but it's something that the NBA could certainly afford to do if they elect to make it a priority. So I'd like for all of you, either now or when the podcast is over or both, 
to visit droppingdimes.org which is the website of the Dropping Dimes Foundation. You can donate money there, actually, directly to these players, and every little bit helps. But I'm going to bring on Scott for the first portion of this podcast so that we can talk not only with him, but with Brian as well, because Brian Taylor is a member of the advisory board of the Dropping Dimes Foundation, and he knows all of these issues very well himself. And so I want to pick their brains a little bit at the outset of this podcast about what you and I can do as fans uh, of the American Basketball Association to help some of these stars and, and players who could use our help. They, they certainly were there for us when we were kids to entertain us, and, and maybe we can do them a solid as well. So let's go to the phone lines right now. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, the 1973 ABA Rookie of the Year, a two-time All-Star, and, of course, a key member of the 1974 and 1976 champion New York Nets teams, the BT Express himself, Brian Taylor. Brian, how are you, man? Good afternoon, Ricky. I've been fine. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. I'm, I am an ABA fan from, from way back, so it's always a thrill to, yeah. to have uh, you know an ABA all-star on the show. And I've got so many things that I want to ask you about your career, but, but I know that a really major thing that you have going on right now and that uh, I know is a big concern for you and, and something that you're trying to educate the public about is the pension issue for uh, ABA players who uh, kind of got lost in the shuffle after the after the merger. Can you can you tell me a little bit about what is going on with trying to get some financial justice for these pioneers of the game that uh, really have kind of been forgotten financially by the powers that be? Yes, that's a very sad story as, as of today, Ricky. Uh, I was a part of a small group of gentlemen who were negotiating with the four leaders, the four executives of the ABA team that were merged into the NBA about two years ago. And we have three concerns. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was stemming from a lawsuit a couple of guys had uh, placed against the NBA, um, NBA uh, owners uh, who were in the NBA at that time, ABA owners who were in the NBA at that time. And so through uh, settlement discussions, they agreed to do three things, two things out of three, which were very, very important to the members of the ABA uh, fraternity. And one was, believe it or not, Ricky, a lot of guys never even got a pension. Even though they played three years or more, uh, they even forgotten that they had a pension and the ABA retirement uh, fund was not going to make them aware of that. So we were negotiating to make sure the guys who never received the pensions got their pension. And that was the bucket number one. We called them bucket threes uh, as we were discussing this. And bucket two were the guys that were shortchanged uh, on the funds that they did receive because without our knowledge, after five years of the merger in 1981, the cost of living increase was cut off. And that was a part of the agreement coming into the NBA is that we would have the same type of pension that the NBA players had. And without our knowledge, the cost of living increase uh, was just cut off. So, therefore, it was cut off at a number of 117 after beginning at the number of $60 per month. Can you imagine that? $60 wow. per month was the agreement. And 
the beauty of it is that we thought we were going to get the cost of living increase. So over years, that number would at least increase. Well, we were very, very surprised that uh, they cut it off after five years without any of our knowledge. So they agreed to make amends on that, which was good for the guys who had gotten short change. But not, not so much to the point where since the cost of living increase was cut off, what about the difference between our cost of living increases over all of those years? Right. And so the four, the four leaders of the ADA teams decided that they would agree to do bucket number one, bucket number two. But on bucket number three, they said we had to go to the NBA administration to make that happen. Well, we tried to do that. We petitioned the NBA uh, a couple years ago, two years ago, and they sent us a letter saying, you know, it's not our legal responsibility to take care of the ADA guys. We're doing some small things for them. Of course, they thought they were big things for them. Uh, and that that's it. And so, you know, we're left out uh, with about a hundred, over 100 guys who are not receiving any pension and uh, really, really struggling, both with their health and, and their finances. And so, you know, we're pushing to make that bucket three happen. Well, let, let's bring in a guy that I know has has been instrumental in getting the the, the word out and in in helping uh, a lot of your your uh, old uh, teammates and opponents uh, from the ABA. Scott Tarter is the CEO of the Dropping Dimes Foundation. He's also the co-founder uh, of that foundation. Scott, uh, are, are you there? I am. Thank you, right. Ricky, for having me on the show. Well, Scott, thank you for coming back on. You know, I know that I, I know that you were on this show uh, about two or three years ago with uh, with Darnell Hillman, uh, I, I believe. And uh, yeah. you know, Scott, you you were you were really the guy who who brought it to my attention a few years ago. Just really how shafted. Uh, a, a lot of these ABA players ha- have been. Uh, they, they haven't been looked after adequately or appropriately through the years, as, as Brian was alluding to. Can can you kind of fill my audience in on the on really the the numbers uh, of this situation and and just how the, the the NBA really hasn't, in my opinion, at least. I don't want to put words in in you guys' uh, mouths, but the, the NBA has has really failed to step up in my opinion yeah yeah no for sure ricky and it's 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 really a surprising and shocking thing when you when you think about it from a basketball history perspective when you think about it from the standpoint of where the nba is today uh, you know the kind of money that the nba and the owners and the players make today which is all fantastic but when you go back to 1976 when the merger between the nba and the aba occurred which is really, as you know, is kind of an acquisition of the Pacers, Spurs, Nuggets, and Nets, uh, more so than it was a merger. You know, a bunch of those teams that were very successful ABA teams. And as you know, the spirit of the ABA continued on after that merger. So even though most of the teams died uh, and most of the players were left holding the bag at that time, the ABA brought amazing talent into the NBA, you know, the likes of Julius Irving and George McGinnis and Dan Issel and George Gervin. I mean, it could go on and on. Artis Gilmore. Uh, and and the three-point shot uh, came directly from the, the ABA. Um, the, the up-tempo style of play came from the ABA, really. Uh, the, the all-star game slam dunk competition was, was the brainchild of the ABA. And the two top-scoring teams in the NBA in the 1976-77 season, the year after the merger, were two ABA teams. It, it was the San Antonio Spurs and the Denver Nuggets. So 
So really, the type of play you see today that everybody loves so much about the NBA, you know, came from the ABA. So when you think about that divergence that occurred in 1976, right, the NBA absorbing all of that entertainment value that everyone loves so much that came from the ABA and all that star power, but yet, you know, if you follow the other vein, you know, so many ABA guys who were part of the backbone of that league were left holding the bag. And uh, that didn't show itself so much until the guys got in their 60s and 70s and started trying to retire, started you know, being unable to work or having health issues. So, so that's kind of where we stand today is this kind of shocking and surprising situation that you have about 115 former ABA players who played at least three years in the league and who would otherwise be entitled to a pension in any other situation. Who, uh, who instead are struggling and in a lot of a lot of times are relying on the Dropping Dimes Foundation for help. How how much money really are we talking about here? Because I know you and I have discussed this privately, and it's for an organization such as the NBA, we're really not talking about a lot of money to take care of these guys, and, and not just take care of them presently, but to take care of them for the rest of their lives. Quite frankly. Yeah, and that's the thing that, that we're really trying to, to get the NBA, and in particular today's NBA players and the NBA Players Association to understand. Um, if, you, if you think about it on its own, um, it's, it's probably a $2 million a year obligation. Okay, so that's, that's, that, that, that sounds like a lot. But when you break that down and you start saying you got 115 guys who played anywhere from three full seasons to nine full seasons, which is how long the ABA lasted, and so if you're, if you're talking about $300 a month, your biggest obligation is, will be to the six guys who played nine years at 2700 a month. And some guys who only played three years, that's probably the majority of three to four year guys, you're talking 900 to $1,200 a month. And that is peanuts to the NBA. And that would be life changing to these guys. And I, I can tell you that from being on the front lines of dealing with them. A thousand to $1,500 a month would, would absolutely change lives. If you took the NBA Players Association and they took responsibility for half, and you took the NBA and had them take responsibility for half, I mean, they give you know tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars a year to charity. Um, they it seems like they could certainly take care of the pioneers of their league um, with these numbers. Well, here's my question for you. I, I know that you've had private conversations with with prominent players and and other people that are involved in in the NBA isn't this a tremendous public relations win for the NBA just by doing the right thing i don't understand why they haven't moved more quickly on this because it seems to me helping out these uh pioneers of the game it, it seems like something that builds a lot of goodwill with the fan base and it's a feel good story well, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's obviously something that should be done from a human standpoint, but even if you move to, to just a straight business analysis, it, yeah, it's, it would absolutely be good PR for the, uh, for the NBA and the players. Um, there would be a showing of, of brotherhood on their part, um, a showing of support for the pioneers. And quite frankly, these guys are all in their late 60s at this point, and with all due respect to Brian, he and I shared a laugh in Los Angeles a few weeks ago about this, a macabre laugh, but, um, but you know, it's, it's, it's a 10-year obligation. If you go on standard mortality tables, you know, we're not talking about setting up a pension for guys who are 30. 
that will need to be funded for the next 50 years. I mean, these guys are starting out in the late in their late 60s, and uh, and based on standard mortality tables, unfortunately, this is not going to be a long-funded project. And even more unfortunately, African American men in America tend to live uh, shorter lifespans than non-African American males, and, and and a lot of these guys happen to be African Americans. So it would be a great thing for the NBA to step up and do, and it would be a very good feel-good. Uh, project. It just isn't so easy to get the current NBA players. Uh, it's not easy to get their ears. Well, Brian, can, can you tell me a little bit about kind of the human aspect of this? Because, I mean, these are guys, these are your brothers, guys that you went to war with and against, and and I'm sure that there's, you know, it's almost like uh, military veterans in a sense, you know, that you look back at that era and you guys shared an experience together in this in this league in the 1970s and you know as scott says you guys are getting a bit older now and and i know that uh you have have seen many of the guys that you played with and against have passed away in recent years and and others are are in ill health and 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 maybe struggling in some ways uh, what's it like for you as a player seeing some of these guys who were who were terrific players and, and brought so much to the game uh, struggling in their in their sunshine years and struggling partly because they're not getting this help that they so desperately need? Well, Ricky, it's really it's really painful, and it hits you in the heart to see my comrades struggle as they are, and even more so when you see one of your teammates passed away because they haven't um, taken care of their health the way they should because of you know economic uh, reasons. And that's uh, why we're coming together to to fight for what is morally correct because there's just a lot of pain going on with the ABA guys that, that played uh, in a great league. And I, I would just say that, uh, you know, being with them is always a pleasure. I was spending time with Tim Bassett uh, just last summer and he's doing camps with me and we were very, very excited over the fact that he had beat cancer, uh, had the gone into remission and then a month later uh, he, he passes away and that, that hits you in the heart. You know, a young 66 year old man passed away at 66 and as, as Scott said, our life expectancy is in the early 70s and uh, I hope I can, uh, Fool those tables, <laughs> Ricky and Scott. Because some of you, 60, I'll be 68 in June. And so, if the time is now to fight for what is right, we don't do it now, then it's uh, probably will never get done. And someone has said that they're waiting for most of the guys to die and then probably settle with a small number of the guys like they did the 365 NBA veterans, which is a precedent that has been set. This is. Like nothing has happened like this before. The 365 NBA guys positioned the NBA for over 10 years to make this right for them, to make it right for them. And so the ABA guys deserve the same type of treatment. And insofar as us being fair in our requests and our demands, we haven't even asked for the difference in the cost of living increase over the number of years from the time they cut it off and in uh, 81 to where we are now, whereas the NBA was kind enough to give the 365 guys a lump sum for those differences. So we're just asking for what they received on, on a monthly basis, which we think is very fair. 
Well, guys, the, I think one of the reasons I struggle with this so much is I look at the the, the total cost that it would probably be to the league, and even less if the, if they were able to split it with the players' association, but. I mean, there are guys in the NBA, as, as you both well know, that are playing 10, 12, 15 minutes a game off the bench, and their contracts are worth a lot more than the the entire cost of doing the right thing and taking care of these players. It's it's a little bit difficult for me to reconcile that this is a league that has so much money that almost every team has some six foot ten European guy on the bench who's making a ton of coin to average five points and four rebounds a game, yet yet we can't take care of of these men uh, who really laid the groundwork, as you said, Scott, for, for the game that, that the fans love today. Yeah, it's, a, it's an extremely frustrating thing for me. I mean, Brian spoke to, you know, the, the most important aspect, which is the player's standpoint, but from the standpoint of a fan who, who grew up watching, you know, Brian and, and his teammates, his great teammates on those Nets teams uh, battling against my favorite team, the Pacers. I mean, I, I, those guys are all icons to me, you know. And, and in fact, Brian looks like he could he could uh, strap on some sneakers and stay with the guys today. Trust me. Yeah, I'm still hurting, though. I got arthritis in a lot of different places, gentlemen. <laughs> the wear and tear of the game, the wear and tear of the game is not, not easy. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. But, you know, from the standpoint of fans, the fans, Ricky, I mean, it's it's incredibly frustrating because, you know, I, uh, you know, I was with Bob Nedelicki, who was a four-time ABA All-Star, um, you know, unbelievable, one of the top 30 ABA players in history, and he and I uh, spent a couple of hours at the Conrad Hotel a few months ago trying to track down Chris Paul because he's the executive director of the NBPA, and we ultimately did track him down, and he was, he was gracious enough to to take some time to hear Bob, you know, sort of spell the situation out. But from my standpoint as a businessman, it's kind of, and a fan, it's kind of crazy that a guy like Bob Metalicky has to sit around in a hotel lobby trying to catch a current player. I mean, Ray, I mean, he's, he's a brother. He is one. So we, I think we just need the current players to hear this and to, in particular, the current executive committee members for the NBPA and if they take this up as a cost, I believe it's going to get done. I think Brian would probably agree. Yes, we just got to stay persistent, and we got to get the message out there because we're taking for granted that all the guys in that position really are aware of our circumstances. So in terms of public relations, we got to continue to spread the word, and that's what some of your listeners can do for us. They can they can write some of the some of the owners as well as some of the players who are in those positions. I know that uh, Scott can share you share with you the uh, executive board. These guys need to know about it and be aware about what has happened to their former the former players in the ABA. And one of our hopes was that we had gotten the word, as Scott said, that Chris Paul had gotten the word from um, Neto about the situation. And our hope was that after the All Star game, when the NBA players met in the, the Bahamas, that this would be on their agenda. And unfortunately, they didn't have time to take it up. And so we have to continue to get this across to all the players, especially the players who are in the position to affect change, that this is something that is mar- the morally correct thing to do. And players should take care of players. 
Well, I think that, that that's very well said. That it is the morally correct thing to do, and and the, and that is important to remember. Um, that uh, sometimes doing the right thing is is not something that you may be legally obligated to do, but you you have a higher obligation. And and Scott, I know you got to hop off in a second, but can can you tell my audience? If there is irritated and frustrated about the the lack of movement uh, of the NBA and the Players Association on an issue like this, what can what can just the average ABA fan uh, like myself do uh, in order to to help out and be uh, useful in this uh, in in this movement? Well, Ricky, I think I think what they could do is reach out to the players who are on the executive committee of the NBA, you know, the NBPA. And Chris Paul is the current uh, chair of that committee. Uh, Steph Curry is on the committee. LeBron, um, Andre Iguodala, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the car traveling right now. I don't have the full list, but if you go to the NBPA website, that's the National Basketball Players Association website, and look up the executive committee, fans may find an executive committee member who is playing on their own home team and they can reach out to their team, they can reach out to that committee member and let them know they care, that they understand the issue, and that they want the NBPA to think about the issue and to consider it. All right, wonderful. And, and, I, and I've got to tell you, you know, last, last year you... Uh... You you put together the the 50th anniversary ABA celebration in Indianapolis and, and and Brian I know you were there as as well as I believe over correct me if I'm wrong was it over a hundred players that were there Scott Yeah over 115 uh, Remarkable Amazing event It was an amazing inc- event It was I was honored just to to be there and say Scott was very very gracious to to invite myself and my wife down and it was a, it was an honor for me as a fan just to just to be present uh in that in that room and Brian I saw um, yourself and, and many other guys who who were just lighting up because a lot of these guys you 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 probably hadn't seen them in years and years and years yeah. I think Yes and what distinguishes our our league back then was the fact that Scott, Scott knows this. We fought hard against each other. The competition when we were on the court was brutal. But once we got off the court, we were truly, we were truly a fraternity. And the guys will never forget that. And that's why we're fighting for each other right now. And it takes that unity of purpose to make this happen. And so I just wanted to say that. Well, I, I don't think that this fight could be in better hands uh, than it is with with you gentlemen and and Brian. Hang on the line because I I gotta ask you some stuff about your career. But Scott, I wanna I wanna let you get out of here gracefully because I think you're in an Uber as we as we speak. <laughs> I, I want to thank Scott too. I want to thank Scott for all the hard work he's doing. And you have to understand that Scott is doing this pro bono, and that means. Uh, tremendous amount to all the guys who need his support and that is just coming from the heart for Scott and his uh, his executive board with the Drop and Dimes Foundation. BT, thank you so much for saying that, man. That's uh, I, I really appreciate it. And we could not do it without, without legends like you supporting us and pushing us. So thank you so much for that. And Ricky, thank you so much for having us on the show and for allowing us uh, for allowing us to get the word out, okay? You've been a huge supporter of the Dropping Dinosaur Foundation, and we, and we appreciate it so much. 
Hey, always, anytime. It's always a pleasure of mine. And I believe here, I, I don't want you to have to drop names, but I believe you're about ready to have lunch with a former Anaheim Amigo, for God's sake. I am, Randy Stoll. Yeah, we, we were just getting ready to meet up. He was a, a six foot eight former Washington State University stud, and he is um, he is out here in Southern California. We're going to have some lunch and talk first year ABA when he played for the Amigos. All right, that's outstanding. Well, listen, enjoy your lunch. Thank you for being on the show. And now I'm going to bug Brian with a with a bunch of my dumb questions about the '70s. Awesome. Thanks again. All Take right, care, brother. Guys. All right, thanks, Scott. All right, take care. All right, Brian. Yeah, Scott. Scott Tarter. I got. I have to echo what you said. Uh, what you said. I mean, one of the genuine stand-up good guys out there, and I know that he is. He's oh, doing no. it for the. He's doing it for the right reasons, you know. And yes. And uh, I know, uh, along with yourself, he's got a lot of other uh, really strong allies. Uh, but uh, Brian, I gotta. I gotta go back and ask you about your career because I mean, my gosh, I'm I'm a fan first and foremost, and. Uh, you know, I got to tell you, I, 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 you were one of the one of the first real kind of hardship guys, right? I mean, you came out of Princeton yes. after your junior year at a time when that wasn't really the thing yet, right? It was still a pretty, re- it was still no, a relatively new concept. Yes, I know George McGinnis did it, and, and Dr. J did it, and I guess being mentioned in those two uh, Hall of Fame is, uh, is, is quite an honor. Uh, but it was something that uh, happened because of Spencer Haywood fighting the the rights, uh, the constitutional right to be able to leave college at the time and sign professionally. So there was a settlement made, and the settlement made, that was made was that the NBA would institute a, a hardship rule. If you qualify for hardship, then you could uh, enter into the draft and. My, my parents were, you know, low-income parents uh, who worked very, very hard from New Jersey. And without my knowledge, uh, the pros were interested in me after my junior year. And I was kind of surprised that I was offered a contract uh, right at the end of uh, my junior year at Princeton and had a tough decision to make. Well, you played also at a time when freshmen w- weren't eligible to play the varsity ball, right? So you really only had two That's years of, of varsity play, even though you were, even though you had just completed your your junior year. And, and another thing that I think is interesting about your career is the fact that you know you went to an Ivy League school and played for Princeton. How did Princeton get the get the inside track on on Brian Taylor coming out of high school? <laughs> Believe it or not, uh, I wanted to go to Princeton because I had a great high school counselor who inspired me to achieve more than I was achieving academically. So during the summers, I was fortunate to go to Lawrenceville. Lawrenceville is a prep school uh, close to Princeton and took two enrichment classes. One was reading, uh, improving my reading comprehension, and the other was learning how to uh, write and write critically. And while I was there one summer, my roommate, well, it wasn't my roommate, but he was, he had a room right next to me. We became really, really good friends. And he was off to Princeton the following year at, on a um, football opportunity. And the reason I say opportunity is that they weren't given athletic scholarships. There was grand and aid is based on need. And so we became really good friends. I 
had the opportunity to go and see the campus a couple of times, supporting him and watching his football games. I just fell in love with Princeton. And at the same time, my uh, counselor gave me some material to read. And one book that I wound up reading was called The Black Athlete, A Shameful Story by Jack Olson. And after reading that, I was determined to get a great education because I think the moral of that whole story was that great athletes were going to college but never getting their degrees, and it became a vicious cycle for them. They never, they were never able to make uh, things happen for themselves in life after they left playing a couple years in college. And I didn't want that to happen to me. I wanted to, to be. A, I was determined to. Uh, to be something more than an athlete. And I wanted to be known for uh, someone who was going to challenge himself academically. I was trying to rid the jock stereotype uh, that athletes were dumb and in particular black athletes were dumb. So I was really excited when Coach Carrillo started recruiting me. And when he told me they had accepted me, I, I was one happy guy. Well, now, that time in history, as you're alluding to, is one where really big-time college athletics and, and Division One basketball was really still being integrated. There were, there were major programs out there in the, in the country that had not recruited a black athlete yet uh, at that time even. So what, what was it like going to, to Princeton, uh, going to an Ivy League school, and like you said, with, with certain stigmas and stereotypes out there about black athletes, what was that time like for you as a, as a young man, uh, you know, being a, a successful a black student athlete at an institution like Princeton? Well, it was a difficult. It was a difficult transition coming from high school to go to Princeton and attend Princeton because one, the academics were well, so very very challenging. So we had hard work to do. I last when my both of my sons we went on to get uh, athletic scholarships in the in the Pac-12. My oldest son Bryce went on to uh, get a degree from University of Oregon, and then my younger son uh, Brendan went on to get a. a USC degree after his junior year and believe it or not, Ricky, they had tools for every course that they had. <laughs> and that's what the athletic programs the athletic programs are doing these days. Where were those guys at? I had Thirty no years right. Tutors <laughs> <laughs> when they told me they had tutors for every course they were taking, I'm like, What? <laughs> so it was very, very challenged academically, uh, for me. And then being the only African American on the team was a, a challenge as well, but I had great teammates. You know, I had a great brotherhood there. Uh, Andy Rimmel, uh, John Berger, guys like that really were just wonderful friends to me. And then, of course, Co- Coach Carrillo was like a father away from a father away from home. So even though there were pressures on me to be involved in a lot of the protesting that was going on because of the war and because of the civil rights. I was able to balance that somehow and still be able to achieve academically, but not without a lot of stress. Well, and it just made me stronger, made me stronger. And the fact that I decided to go to a school that was so close to home for me, I grew up in Perth Amway, New Jersey, which is probably 30 minutes away from Princeton. And half the town would always come down to watch the Princeton game. So I had tremendous support all around. 
and that that really helped me cope with the, the challenges of, of being, uh, as they said back in the day, a, a token uh, on the squad. But it didn't really matter because I was seeking a, a fantastic education, which I received. Yeah, because you you came out early, but you went but you went back and finished your degree later, right? I think that was the smartest thing I did. After ten years of playing, I tore my Achilles, and the doctor says, "Oh, it's time for you to pick up a tennis racket and go back to school." So I went back to school, and that was a wonderful experience as well because I became really close friends with Craig Robinson, and as you know, his sister. <laughs> is the the wonderful wonderful Michelle Obama, mm -hmm. and got to get to know them well, and so I was a class of seven, the original class of seventy three, but graduated in nineteen eighty four, and the kids got a laugh out of that, <laughs> and I had a great experience the second time around, Ricky, because I was like the old guru. Everybody would sit around and hear my stories about the NBA. And they just wanted to know what it was like, and it was it really was a joy going back and finishing my degree in '84. And I think that was the smartest thing to do, and it got my uh, it got my educational career started as well. Well, l let me ask you about that 1972 year when you decided to to come out early. Obviously, at that time, you've got the NBA, you've got the ABA, and those leagues. The ABA is very aggressively going after uh, talented players that are coming out of college. And, of course, the ABA would do all kinds of creative things like uh, tr try to keep players in the same geographic area where they went to college. I know that that worked with, with Dan Issel and, and, and Louis Dampier with, with the Colonels franchise and, and, and other guys as well. But you got drafted by the Supersonics in the NBA. How tough of a decision? Was it a tough decision? What went into deciding that you were going to go with the, with the ABA? Well, believe it or not, Ricky, I had signed with the I had signed with the Nets way before the draft. Okay. I was fortunate enough to have a great counselor, and I think you heard this name, Bill Bradley. Ah, and yes. he counseled me, and he was a part of the executive players committee, who told me that the merger was imminent, and it would just be smart for me because of the economics of the game, having two bidders versus one will make a, make a difference in, in my financial offer. So I just couldn't resist, as you just said, teams were looking to have people in the same geographical area on their teams. And, of course, me being in Princeton and the Nets being in Long Island, that, that was great for the Nets and myself. And so I decided, because the offer was so tremendous, to to sign with New York because I knew I wanted to, just like I did with Princeton, want to stay close to home so my fans could see me play with the Nets. Uh, so people didn't realize it, that I wasn't really even concerned about the NBA draft. And there was always uh, questions were being asked from the NBA whether I signed or not. And, and we really didn't tell them that information then. And so I was selected in the second round I think, even though they knew I had signed with the Nets, because back in those days, Ricky, you signed, even if you were drafted by a team, they had your rights for perpetuity mm -hmm. until the uh, changes were made at the Oscar Robertson suit um, for some type of free agency. But before that, they figured, well, even if I sign with the 
the Nets and the ADA, if there was a merger, they would still have my rights. So my heart was always in, in New York. Okay, one of the questions that I'm always fascinated with is the transition from college ball to, to pro ball. Now, obviously, on the court, you didn't have very many problems because you were the rookie of the year uh, in that 1972-73 season. But that Nets team that you joined hadn't really taken shape yet. Uh, it was the last year of, of, of Lou Karnaseka's uh, run as the head coach there. You guys hadn't gone out and gotten Dr. J yet. He was he was still in Virginia. What was it like coming into the ABA that first year? And a couple of questions specifically for you. One, just the sheer number of games where, you know, rather than playing 25, 30 games, whatever you were playing at Princeton, you got this 84-game schedule. And the travel in those days was not always luxurious in the ABA. Uh, What was that adjustment like for you off the court as a rookie? It was a tough adjustment coming in. I didn't, I didn't start. John Norch was uh, the starting guard along with Bill Malfioni, two tremendous guards. But I was smart enough to sit there and watch and learn. And I was getting a few minutes, but I wasn't uh, one of the key members of that, that squad my, my rookie year until John Rose got hurt. But because I was smart enough to work hard, stay in great shape, and to watch everything they were doing – that when I was called on to become a father, I was ready to always run. The challenge was the fatigue factor. Like you said, you play 25, 27 games in college, all of a sudden you're playing 84 games. And the difference today than back in the day is that we, we play five games a week sometimes. Sometimes, instead of playing back-to-back, we were playing back-to-back-to-back three nights in a row. And that was just that was just tough on the body. And so you had to take care of yourself off the court. You had to get your rest and run in the streets, not too much partying. And I was able to, I was able to adjust because as the guys called me, I was a nerd. I was in, I was in the hotel room reading while everybody was out partying. <laughs> so, my, wife, my wife doesn't believe that though. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's your story and you're sticking to it. Uh, I, <laughs> So, what was the travel like? I mean, were you guys flying like regional airlines into some of these places, going into Virginia and, and things like that? Because I remember at, yes. the, at the 50th anniversary thing, you know, with uh, Spencer Haywood and 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 uh, Dr. J and those guys were up there talking, and they were telling some. I think it was Spencer Haywood that was he, he was telling some stories about uh, flights, you know, like a couple, one in particular, I think, where he was like, you know, they weren't sure if they were going to make it uh, flying in or out of Denver, one or the other. I mean, do, do, do you have any ADA yeah. uh, tra- travel horror stories? Well, this could, well, I have a horror story. And I hate to think about it. But the tough part of it was that you would travel from New York and you'll be going down to Memphis and you have to make three stops. <laughs> <laughs> and, we was, and we weren't in first class. We were in coach. <laughs> we had a fight hard to become uh, and you get seven point of sitting and coach you know, how is that possible <laughs> then you'd have to get there and play but that that to me was a hard where you, we go to Virginia and you still had to make two stops to get to Virginia I mean what the heck <laughs> is going on here and, and so 
I think a few times they decided to charter a plane. And of course, this was in the state of the art type of charter plane. (laughs) (laughs) One of the engines blew. (laughs) Oh, man. The sucker was smoking. Oh. Of course, we were we were afraid. All the guys were afraid. So I remember that trip, and I was I thought it was the end. Somehow, some way, we uh, we we were able to uh, stop shorter than our destination, and and we made that one. And then we went on to a commercial flight. But that was some of the some of the <laughs> wow. funny memories now that you have the ADA. But uh, at the time, of course, that was uh, you were fearing for your life. Yeah, I'll guess. I mean, I if, <laughs> maybe you just had to rely on the fact that surely God wouldn't kill Julius Irving, you know. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> Thank God for the doctor. <laughs> yeah, it's not the doctor's time yet, which means that yeah. it's not it's not yours that, either. That was most that was the most important benefit for being doctor buddy and being on this team. Uh, hey, I, I, here's what I want to ask you. I mean, as a guy, and I want to get into what a good shooter uh, you were, and I'm sure you still are. Because once a shooter, always a shooter, in in my experience. But I, I want to ask oh, you. So long as you don't have to play. Still, yeah, but. <laughs> as long as you can spot up, man. I know that you can still drain That's them. Right. You don't forget how to do that. I, I, I wanted to ask right, you right. about that red, white, and blue ball. Um, what was it like? Was there any kind of an adjustment coming out of college? And like, okay, well, here's the red, white, and blue ball. I got to get used to this feeling, feeling right in my hands and looking right to my eyes. Yes, it took a little adjustment, but not long. Not a long adjustment. And after a while, you just you didn't even realize that you were playing with a red, white, and blue ball. It was just a, a natural feeling. It took a short while, but, you know, nothing major. I think, you know, really nothing major. I think it was, it may have been Issel. Uh, I had Dan Issel on the podcast a, a while back, and, and I think he told uh-huh. me that he that he learned, he actually learned to like it because the spin of the ball, you know, he could he could tell things about his release from, from watching the spin. Uh-huh. And it was easier to see, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. Well, right. well, let's talk about how those great teams, the, the championship teams that you were a part of in 74 and, and, and 76. You, you guys went out and got Julius uh, before that 74 season. And I, I was listening to an interview that you, that you did uh, recently somewhere else where you were, you, were, uh-huh. you, were, you were telling the interviewer that you actually – you actually thought that if the team acquired Dr. J, you would probably be in the deal going back to Vir- to Virginia, uh, and you were quite pleased. Yeah, I was nervous. Yeah, take me back to when those rumors were out there that that uh, you guys were going to acquire Irving, and and your thoughts that you might be a part of the the package that that brought him to New York. Yes, I was really nervous when I started hearing rumors that. Uh, the Nets were going to acquire Julius. So I'm like, oh my God, but looking at the team, we figured we'd have to give up a lot. And I'm coming off the Rookie of the Year award, and I'm saying, whoops, I guess uh, I might be going to Virginia. So I was biting my nails the whole time that the discussions were happening. And then when I realized that uh, when the trade was made, I'm like, I'm still here. <laughs> I was one. I was one happy guy. I was like, oh my god, I got a chance to play with the doctor. 
But yeah, I was nervous about that, Ricky. That's that's a truism. <laughs> well, take me back to that '74 season because you know I was looking at that roster today, and you guys were loaded. You've got. You've got yeah, Irving and, and Larry Larry Keenan and Billy Paltz and yourself and John Williamson and you've got Mike Gale coming off the bench and Wendell Ladner and, and, and guys like that. Yeah. Um, what was it like playing with that team and, and how would you stack that team up? Because people always ask the question, how good were the best ABA teams compared to the best yeah. NBA teams? Uh, yeah. Where would you where would you put you guys if if we took that seventy four team and the seventy six team was good too, but I, I'm just looking at the seventy four yeah, yeah. roster right now. If you put that seventy four yeah, team, the talent on that team, yeah, if you put them up against, I think the Celtics won the championship that year in the NBA. If I'm not mistaken, you think you guys could could have taken the the Celtics in a series? Oh yeah, yeah, I, I think so because it was such a tough matchup. You got the prolific scoring and Super John Williamson. You got Larry Keenan on one wing, Dr. J on the other wing. And guess who played the second longest out of all of us? The Whopper. <laughs> I think the Whopper, Billy Paul's wind up playing 17, 18 years. Yeah, long career. Great player. Under, underrated. But he was a phenomenal center. He could score, he could rebound. And so he was perfect for us. So the toughest part of that squad is everyone really accepting their roles because there's only one basketball. And so we knew who our go-to guy was. Our go-to guy was Dr. J, and he was going to create create everything for us because there were going to be a lot of double teams happening. I know for me, it was great playing with him because they figured that, hey, rather than Doc do his thing, let's leave Brian and double Doc with my guy. Well, they learned that they couldn't do that because all I would do is spot up and shoot the three and Doc was unselfish enough to do that but the other thing is that anytime we missed a shot you had the fantastic offensive rebound in by Larry Keenan and so you always had Larry and Lopper on the boards Doc doing this thing having the freedom to do it and then you have Super John who's like give me the ball because he's unstoppable and then you had role players like Wendell and Mike Yell coming off the off the bench, and lost very little there. I mean, Mike Yale was a tremendous uh, defensive player, and he was a capable mid-range jump shooter. So they had to play him honest. That was an unbelievable team because we all accepted the role in 1974. Now, what happened was 1975, guys forgot what got us there. We had a tremendous year. Kentucky was phenomenal that year. I remember playing them in the playoff game. I think we pretty much had the same record. We went down to Kentucky, and we uh, we lost to Kentucky, and we wound up playing the Spirits of St. Louis. And we beat them 11 straight times that year. But unfortunately, in the playoffs, guys decided that it was about me too ball. Everybody wanted the ball, and they forgot who was uh, – who was our go-to guy and who should have been our go-to guy and got a little bit selfish and we just went down. We went down. That's why there were some, there were so many trades made the following year and we were concerned as to whether we still could win a championship in 75, 76, but we were able to do that because the guys coming in 
knew their roles and willing to play their roles, and we became a great team as well in 1975-76. Well, that... that I hope up, that makes a lot of sense. It does. Well, that upset that you're talking about, the losing to the to the Spirits in 75, and the Spirits are, oh, I mean, my gosh, I mean, what a group they were, right? And yeah. M- Marvin Barnes is one of the guys that... Uh, I think you know unless you really know a lot about the ABA, a lot of modern fans may not know who who Bad News Barnes was. But I mean, he was an yeah. he was an incredible talent, and I know in that series yeah, he was talent. he was you know he was he was playing tr- he was tremendous dominant. ball. Yeah, yeah, he was dominant, and that, but more than anything, they did what we did the year before. They played together as a team. And they had some savvy veterans uh, that uh, really helped them come together. Freddie Lewis, who should be, his numbers should be hanging up in the Pacers, uh, you know, stadium. Because he was a tremendous quarterback, tremendous player. And he really was, uh, he was really the leader of that squad. But everybody played their role. Gus Gerard was good coming off the bench. I mean, you name it. They all came together at the right time in the season that year, and we were we were pretty much swept. We won the first game, and then we lost four in a row. Which, that was really a mind blower for us. Yeah, it taught us a lesson. Right. I mean, it really you, taught us a lesson. You guys had to be stunned because, like you said, you had just—I mean, you—you you guys had just beaten up on on that team all season, and. You know, and the ABA was a league that didn't have a lot of teams, so you saw these teams a lot <laughs> during the regu- during the regular yeah. season, as opposed to yeah. Yeah. the way the NBA is today. You know, if the team's not in your conference, you play them home and home, and that's it. But you, you guys, yeah, we beat them eleven straight times. We beat them eleven <laughs> straight times. So maybe we, you could say that we were not mentally prepared because we thought we, all we had to do was show up. But there was dissension happening before that. And that's because uh, everybody wanted, not to say everybody, but uh, people forgot that uh, it took teamwork and teamwork both offensively as well as defensively, and, and we fell apart. Well, in in that off season, I believe not not long after not long after that series, you know, I know that uh, that was when Wendell Ladner passed away in the in the plane crash there. In New York, I believe. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that was just, it was very sad for all of us. I, I just still can't believe it because Wendell, we thought was indestructible. I mean, he was so strong and he gave his body up. And to lose him, it would only have to be in a plane crash because he was that strong. We just didn't believe that. Anything can happen to Wendell. He was so such a hard nosed player and tough man. Good looking man. Of course, we used to tease him all the time. And he, he, we used to call him the Clark Gable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he kind of had that. Man. Yeah, he kind of had that Burt Re- Burt Reynolds vibe happening or whatever. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the the mustache and all that. Incredible, good, good person. Oh boy, that was a that was a tough loss for us, and uh, you know I, I cry about it to this day because I my lock was right next to him, and he looked at me like I was his little brother, and 
I still remember him with his hair dry, making sure his hair was, was right and, and making sure he had enough cologne on so that he could attract uh, <laughs> well, the opposite sex. And he was just a, he was just a great teammate. And, you know, we miss him to this day. Well, you know, t- t- tell me, how much fun was it? You know, I, I was born in 71. So, unfortunately, my tragedy is... I actually don't remember the ABA. I came of age as a sports fan, you know, in terms of being able to remember things now as an adult, really around 78. And I think part of the reason, I grew up in Kentucky, born and raised in Kentucky. Uh And I think part Uh of the reason that I became so fascinated with the ABA is that that was our only pro team. You know that that Kentucky yeah. uh, ever had, and I just missed out. Right, the 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 Kentucky Colonels yeah. went poof about two or three years before I really knew what was up, and so I think that I you know I was always extra fascinated by that, and so I just became you know I, I read everything I could read about the ABA you know pretty much my entire life. What was it like there in the seventies? Because we all know the. The, the the 70s were this period of time where, you know, crazy hairstyles and mustaches and sideburns and perms and afros and long hair and crazy cars and, you know, just living big and having fun. And it was just a different kind of environment. What, what was it like being in your 20s, one of the very best in the world at, at what you did you're a pro athlete, and it's right in the 1970s, which, looking back on yeah. it, was just, you know, kind of, it almost, in a way, was like the perfect time period to be a guy in your early, mid-20s, you know, living out your your professional dreams. What was it like just as, a, yeah. as an ABA player so in those days, just the whole experience? And instead of just walking around, you were sort of floating around. Socially, it was, it was because there's the uh, you know civil rights movement and of course the war, the uh, Vietnam War, and a lot of protesting. But for us, we we were free. Yeah, money in our pockets, and uh, we had we had everything. And so to have all of that and do what you love to do, we were playing basketball for nothing. But we're getting paid to do this. You couldn't help but float. You couldn't help but be happy, a happy person. And so it was just an unbelievable time. Exciting, we're stylish. Did you forget the platform shoes? <laughs> could you imagine? Could you imagine, Ricky? All right, so big artist, seven foot two. Could you imagine him in some platform? Are you platform kidding? Shoes? Are you kidding me? I met I met artists uh, at the at the 50th anniversary, and still one of the one of the most massive individuals that I've ever stood next to in my life. No, I can't even I can't imagine artists in the platform shoes with the full afro that he had back then. Yeah, he would he would have looked like he was eight feet yeah. tall, no doubt. I know the music. Don't forget the music. Uh, the music was funky, as a matter of fact. What was so exciting about my nickname, which Doc gave me, they called me the BT Express because I, I was because I was fast. He said, as fast as a train, they said, the BT Express. And there was a really popular group out at the time called the BT Express. So you have to go to uh, the Internet and um, 
Google the DT Express and listen to some of the music, and you'll see the uh, the music that was happening during that time. It was really, really exciting and really, really hip. All right, I'm pulling. So what a time. You're right, Ricky. That was an unbelievable time in my life and for all the other guys. And that makes it really sad now to know that. You know, we're, we're in the 60s and we're not going into our late 60s and the guys needing the help that they need. Uh, I almost forget that those times were just uh, unbelievable, happy, and fun times for us. Well, I've got to ask you, and I'm sure this is a question that you've been asked a million times through the years, but I'm going to be unoriginal and ask you anyway, because it's a question that I think people want to know the answer to this for good reason. You know, one of the things about the ABA that makes it so special is there's not a ton of footage that survives, right? There's there's only yeah. a handful of complete, full broadcast, really, from from your career, and yeah. a lot of these highlights and a lot of the most incredible things, and we've talked about some of the names, but obviously uh, Irving, Gervin, Gilmore, Issel, McGinnis, David Thompson, who you who you played against and then later with in the NBA. Uh, these guys were doing incredible things on a nightly basis in Norfolk, Virginia, or in Memphis, Tennessee, or in wherever, and and now yeah. and now mostly just what we have to go on are the are the stories. Could you give me just yeah. just one or two snapshots of just things? It doesn't even have to just be Julius, but just things that you saw during your career that just kind of made you even as a even as a player drop your jaw a little bit and think, "Holy crap, that's something." Well, of course, being in practice, this was Dr. J and Larry Keenan, they used to compete. They used to uh, see who could have the greatest dunk during that day. I can't even describe some of the dunks that they were doing. You could just imagine. I mean, this is not even um, something that you'll ever see on film because it was in practice. And this some of the dunks that Doc would do over artists. was just this unbelievable, and then more than anything, is watching how the Iceman glided through the air. He scored, he averaged 30 points on us in the playoff series with a broken hand. And just watching him slide around the court, just glide around the court, just amazing to watch him do. And just watching artists sometimes, on some of the film that I do see now, watching artists with his dominance of this low post moves. He only had a couple of moves, but they were they were dominant. And then the shooting of Isu and Dampier. So you imagine how great the the uh, net team was. But let's look at the Kentucky team. They had three they had three Hall of Famers, right? Oh yeah, Louis Dampier, Artis Gilmer, and then and then Isu. Yeah, and a Hall of Fame coach. So with Hubie Brown, yeah, too. So Hubie Brown, which is I, I still can remember hearing Hubie screaming. <laughs> <laughs> Even on the other side, <laughs> I mean, in Kentucky, the uh, big, I think it was Freedom Hall, and the locker rooms were kind of far apart, but even though they were far apart, you could still hear <laughs> you be getting on this guy, that's, 
that's a memory I'll never forget. Uh, playing in Kentucky and hearing you beyond their tail. I mean, <laughs> those are the type of things that you that you really that you really remember. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because we're getting up to the merger, and and of course you guys came back and and rebounded, learned, re re uh, configured things, and, and came back from that disappointment in '75 and and won your second title in 76 and of course you beat the nuggets in the championship series and you that was, those were the last ABA games ever played but you're talking about how good those colonels teams were and i'm just looking at the teams that you guys beat in 76 like you're talking about you went 7 games with with the spurs and and Gervin, and then you beat the Nuggets in six games, and the, the Nuggets had the, the best record in the league, I believe, in 76. And then the Nuggets went on and won their division in the NBA in, in 77 and won, and, and won 50 games. And the Spurs made the playoffs. Um, wow. How frustrating was it for you to see – I mean, you know that this merger is is coming on, and the, the writing's on the wall. You guys are down to seven franchises uh, by the end of the season. A couple of teams. Uh, well, I know the Baltimore team went uh, belly up before they even got out of the preseason, and then the San Diego sales were gone, and I think Utah folded. So anyway, you're you're down to seven teams at this point, and it's just kind of run its course. It is what it is. But how frustrating was it? to see that Nets team, even though the Nets got picked up in the merger, the team just got disintegrated there. Uh, how disappointing was it that you weren't able to take that squad into the NBA and, you know, face down against their best? Unfortunately, you got gutted yeah, there. Yeah, very disappointing. Yeah, very disappointing to me because I knew that my contract expired. And so I knew because of the financial situation of Roy Ball and the Nets that even if they would have probably, even if they would have stayed together, I mean, even if the Roy Ball didn't sell the team, that I probably wouldn't have been a part of that because they were dealing with some financial issues and I was being recruited by some NBA teams and being offered some nice big numbers. And so I was really really frustrated over just the circumstances of having such a tremendous career with the Nets, knowing that it was it was coming it was coming to an end. So I was really, really upset about the uh, the circumstances of how everything unfolded. And then of course watching them trade Julius to Philly was just a mind blower for me as well. So it, it was it was a tough time. It was a tough time not knowing where I was going to be, knowing I wouldn't be in that, knowing that we had a tremendous team that we could compete with any NBA team. As a matter of fact, during the preseason that year, we were beating all the NBA teams, and uh, we would have we would have been a a great team in the NBA. So it was very very disappointing, and just another educational. Uh, opportunity for me as well to know that the game is business it's, it's a business and so it was an awakening for me as well to know that despite all that we had contributed to the ADA and to Roy Bow and the Nets that the business side of it was going to take precedent and so that's that's how I view that 
So what was the, that adjustment like? You're, you're in the NBA. You, you, you wind up with the Kansas City Kings for that merger season. You had a, you had a strong season uh, on the court. Uh, you averaged 17 a game. You shot over 50% from the field. Uh, 4.4 assists per game, 2.8 steals. Your 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 numbers were were certainly there. What was what was the style like? I, you know, you're coming out of kind of that wide open ABA game, and now you're moving into a league where all but four of the teams are playing the NBA game of the 70s. What what kind of differences did you notice in terms of the the on court product as you as you went into the NBA? I was thinking how slow the game was. <laughs> Believe it or not, I can remember playing with Kansas City, and of course, my coach was was uh, the great Phil Johnson, who spent a lot of years with Jerry Sloan and um, in Utah. And his whole game was a half court. His whole philosophy was half court basketball. You know, they like to slow the game down and um, run sets. And I can remember, just give me the ball and let's go. <laughs> let's fast break. Let's fast break. Let's shoot the three. And of course, the NBA didn't adopt the three until three years later. Right. And so it was. Uh, I, I was surprised that uh, how slow the game was coming in the NBA. That was the big. That was the biggest adjustment for me. Well, and so, uh, well, and as you said, it's no small thing that you know the the NBA is going to adopt the three point shot, but they don't adopt it until until seventy nine. So they've taken away. You know, you led the league in three point shooting in seventy six, and now all of a sudden, no no three point line. That personally, they they took away one of your big weapons. But you know what, Ricky? To be honest with you. I wasn't in love with I was not in love with that three point shot because I always believed that coming from Princeton with Coach Carrillo taught me what a good shot was and what a bad shot was. He missed a three pointer a couple times and it really affected your mid range game. And so I wasn't really a big fan of the three point shot, even though I knew it was a great element of the game because it kept people in the stands late in the game and you, know, you never gave up. But it wasn't adjust. It was not an adjustment for me because I believe that I was one of the masters of the mid-range game, and I enjoyed that. Okay, now that's so it. That's to, interesting. That's yeah. interesting that you say that. Yeah. And I, all right, and you know where I'm going to go because I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you about that 79-80 season. But before I get there, you played for Larry Brown the following year in in Denver, and you you played with uh, David Thompson and and Issel, and you know they. Quite, quite good Nuggets teams in those days. Uh, what did you think? I'm just going to ask you straight up. Uh, how did you like playing for Larry Brown? I love playing for Larry Brown. He was a great teacher of the game, great motivator. He was always encouraging you to, to improve. His practices were superb. He was young, hip. He was young and hip. And, uh, you know, I really looked up to him. I thought he was, I, and I think to this day, he was one of the great coaches of all time. So, yeah, I enjoyed playing for Larry. Was he still wearing, like, the crazy clothes then? Because, I mean, <laughs> some of the stuff that he wore on the sideline, I mean, I, over denim, you know, overalls and 
crazy, crazy outfits. Mod Squad. He got he got a little bit more conservative in the NBA, but he still was sharp. <laughs> now, David Thompson, I, I, I want to ask you real quickly about David Thompson because he's another guy that unfortunately uh, suffered an injury too early in his career that uh, kind of curtailed uh, the trajectory that he was on. But I mean, you played against him in the in the ABA, and you played with him that year in Denver. What, what was it like? You know, seeing David Thompson when when he really was the Skywalker. Oh, he's just unstoppable. A beautiful player to watch. Someone to put tears in your eyes trying to guard him. <laughs> unstoppable. That that first step gets by you, and then you know what's going to happen. He's going to dunk on somebody, and if you you back off of him, he had that beautiful mid range jump shot. He's just tenacious. You know, we all know about his leaping ability. Great teammate, uh, quiet, but uh, a great communicator and in, in inspiring you to play the right way. Just amazing, amazing player. Well, Brian, let me let me leave you with this because you spent the last four years of your career in, in San Diego with with the Clippers. And your second year in San Diego, that 79-80 season, the NBA finally gets around to adopting the the three-point shot. And even though you just told me a few minutes ago that you didn't really have particularly a a love for that shot because it could screw up your mid-range game, which was your bread and butter... But that first year of the three-point shot, you were, you were I can say without any equivocation, you were the original three-point king of the NBA. Because that first year, you made more three-pointers. Now, there were 22 teams in the NBA during the 79-80 season, and you made more three-pointers than 19 of the 22 franchises. In the league that year. Wow, <laughs> the, that's mind blowing. So you you had the Clippers. I give all that credit to. Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry for interjecting. No, it's all right. Go ahead. But what I was going to what I was going to say is that I give all that credit to our coach Gene Shue, who was an innovator of the game, and he believed that the three point shot could make a difference in winning and losing. He was uh, an encourager of taking that shot, but the difference then and now is that the guys that could shoot it would shoot it. Nowadays, anybody can shoot it, it seems like. But back in the day, I was sort of the designated three-point shooter because they knew I had a history of shooting that at a pretty high percentage. So Gene Shoot could set plays in for me. So I was able to go downtown several different times coming off the fast break, and then we also had another play where I dump it into the big guy, and my guy would always turn his head. i go the opposite of where he turned his head. And I had unselfish center and Swin Nader and Bill Walton when Bill was healthy that would just spot me up by catching and shoot it. But the freedom to shoot that shot back in the day was unusual because everyone thought it was such a bad shot. So I was lucky that I had a coach who believed in it. Now, the year Gene Shue left, Paul Silas came, and he didn't believe in it as much as Gene Shue. So I didn't shoot as many. I still, I still was one of the leaders in the league. I think I might have been a little bit more proficient. I think my percentage was higher, but I didn't shoot as many. 
Yeah. So, you led the league in percentage that, that year. Yeah, yeah. That was the difference. I didn't shoot as many, but I um, was more selective in the ones I shot, and my percentage went up. So I give the credit to Gene Shue, who now people know me as a three-point shooter, even though I thought that I was one of the guys that played both ends of the court and knew how to play the game the right way because I had great coaches in Larry Brown and, of course, the Hall of Fame coach, uh, Pete Carrill, and Lou Karnasek in my rookie year. I had such great coaches that I wanted to be known as a guy that knew how to play the game, period, not to a three-point um, shooter, the gunner, who shot a lot and made a high percentage, but I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you didn't shoot that many. I mean, you know, you look at today's standards, you, you were you were 90 for 239 that year. You were taking three a game. That's a lot. Yeah, you were taking three a game. Now that's like that's a good that's a good uh, you know seven or eight minutes for Clay Thompson and J- James Harden and those guys these days because the shot has become such a you know it's just become such a huge part of the game. I mean, get, teams are yeah, taking yeah. teams are literally taking more threes than twos some nights. How do you yep, how yep. do you see that as a as a guy who came up in the seventies and played into the eighties and you were up, you were right there at the start of this three point revolution, but I mean you in those days I mean you were taking three a game and I mean you you were gunning them up by the standards of the day. What what do you think when you see things where guys are guys are attempting fifteen or twenty twenty threes in one game? I wish I could play today. <laughs> That's the best answer. That wasn't the answer I expected, but that was the best answer. I know. But it's been, an, it's been an adjustment for me, Ricky. It really has because the way I look at the game, is I always thought that the best shooters should have the right or the freedom to shoot those shots. Guys that are shooting in the low 30s or... You know, even some now in the in the mid thirties, I don't think they should have the freedom to shoot that shot all the time. And that's the adjustment that I'm having. When you go watch a game between both teams, there's sixty and seventy three point attempts and I'm one who comes from a history where we had to execute to get shots. You know, we ran plays. And and the beautiful part of the game is that you play together with five people and there's movement and there's cutting and now to see the game where you come down and you just shoot the ball without even another teammate touching it, that's an adjustment for me, um, that's an visual adjustment for me but I, I wish I could play today and have that freedom to do that <laughs> <laughs> Alright, I, I, right, I got one, uh, one question for you here that I jotted down and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hate myself if I don't ask you this so, what, was the, okay. what was the worst building that you played in in the ABA because I know that some of those buildings were were old and not the greatest. Worst building. <laughs> what was the worst building in wow. the ABA? We used to play in San Diego and we used to play in this seemed like an auditorium that was like my middle school auditorium. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember the name of it but it was like an auditorium that maybe thousand people could attend if that many 
That was the worst building. I have to look that up and find out what was the name of that building. I get that back to you if you don't find it before. Yeah. Okay. Before yeah. Because I'm gonna I have to look that. into that. That's that's the one. Oh my goodness! And we used to stay in the Grand Hotel where the rooms were very very small, and then you go play in the gym that is smaller than your middle school gym. It was, that was quite an experience. I appreciate your time, and I had a lot of fun today with you. And spread the word about our fight for. My comrades, ADA pensions, and uh, you know we'll stay in touch. Absolutely, you know it, man. Thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate having right, you on the buddy. show. All right, take care. All right, you too. All right, bye, bye, bye. buddy. My thanks again to Brian Taylor, uh, a terrific guy and a fantastic player as well, and some great stories about the American Basketball Association, about Dr. J, and about what for me is still the sweet spot of pro basketball. I can't get enough of it. Brian tells me also, by the way, that the the worst venue in the ABA, the one that he couldn't think of the name of in San Diego, was Golden Hall in San Diego that made its mark with Brian for being especially bad in a league that, quite frankly, had a lot of bad venues. And also, of course, my thanks to Brian and Scott Tarter for coming on the show today to talk about the Dropping Dimes Foundation and why what the Dropping Dimes Foundation is doing is so vitally important for the future of many former ABA players. And I certainly hope that there's something that you and I can do, whether it's donating 5 or 10 or 20 or $50, just any small gesture is really an important thing. And and word of mouth is important as well. We need to get out there and keep talking about how the NBA is too cheap to help these players until the NBA finally develops a conscience and does something right. So until next time, and I don't know when next time will be, but until next time, there will be one. This is Ricky Cobb reminding you to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. Thank you.